Hello and welcome to The Stack, a busy show this week where we celebrate Monaco's brand new book, Swim and Sun, a Monaco guide, plus a newly launched travel title called Sablos, and finally a newspaper for the Venezuelan community abroad and a magazine about produce. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show on a splashy note. It's Monaco's brand new book, Swim and Sun, a Monaco guide, a celebration of the pleasure of diving into the ocean, leaping into a pool, lake havens, and more. So I had the pleasure to welcome Amy Vandenberg, Deputy Editor of Book Publishing, to talk about the new release, and also the great Brenda Tui, Monaco's client director, who wrote an essay for the book. Welcome both. We were thinking of some good ideas for books, and we have featured so many pools and beach clubs and lakeside swimming spots, and we thought that would make a really good book. And it's, I mean especially now that it's summertime, it seemed like a really good idea. I think it's something that everyone can relate to. Everyone has a different relationship with swimming, whether it's actually diving into a pool or lying on a dock or even just, as Brenda would do, pull up a, a lounge chair and sit beside the ocean or, or a pool. There's just something about water that makes us relax. There's something about lifestyle and... And just kind of slowing down your day and your week and just being by water, I think, is a really, really big thing that we can all connect to. We'll come back to Brenda's essay in a minute, <laughs> but I also would like to ask you about photography. I think that's, of course, the magazine we prize our photographers, but I think especially for this book, photography was very important, right? It was very important. It was very important because you can get a picture of a pool and not want to jump into it. There's something about how you look at something. So for photography, we wanted to capture, you know, we wanted to really get that. I want to jump into that feeling. But we also wanted to capture the things around the pools and around the, you know, it's really important to get a shot of the lounge chairs that you're sitting on or the umbrella you're sitting under or the cocktail you're going to have beside the pool at the Beverly Hills Hotel, that kind of thing. It's really important to kind of make the reader feel like they're actually at that place. Well, let's go to the essays, which is one of my favorite parts of the book as well. And I have Brenda Tui here. You wrote one essay. But what I like about it, I'll read just the first line of your essay. I've never been much of a swimmer and I truly hate the ocean. But it made it for a lovely essay. Tell us more, Brenda, because I love that. Because, you know, as Amy was saying, we all have different relationship to the water in a way. Yeah, I mean, the ocean is is very, very big and powerful. You know, it's much more powerful than I am. And I'm just a bit of a wuss. And getting into the ocean, I mean, you can't see the bottom and there's all kinds of things there that maybe might hurt your feet. And then it's Sharks. really, oh gosh, <laughs> don't say that. I mean, and it's also so ferocious that it's quite a challenge to get in. Then you might get caught in a wave and be kind of, whoom, kind of swept underneath and swirled around and tossed out in another bit of it. I find it quite challenging. You know, swimming pool is much more for me, but it's very restorative just sitting near the ocean and looking at it. It's kind of exciting when the waves are big, but I just prefer to, to sit near it 
And I can it. relate. I yes. can relate. Can yes. I make a note about how we commissioned Brenda? <laughs> Please. I would love to know this. Well, we thought we wanted something besides the I learned to swim or this is why I love swimming in the med. Something a bit different. And we thought, like, who would have, like, a different opinion on swimming? And I talked to Brenda, and she goes, oh, yeah, I know, I hate the ocean. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what I wanted. Exactly. Because you know what? I actually don't want to know how Brenda feels about the ocean. I want to know what Brenda's wearing beside <laughs> the ocean because she always looks so great. And I know that she would look glamorous beside any pool. So that was really fun. Amy, coming back to you, uh, you know, I'm guessing, of course, coming from Canada, you do like swimming in lakes. I'm presuming that. And I think you wrote kind of a, an essay for it as well. Yes, I love swimming in lakes. That's been my experience of swimming growing up. In fact, I didn't really swim in the ocean until I was in my 20s, really. So my whole my whole childhood was jumping off of docks into lakes. And actually, like, it's so different. I mean, obviously, people know what it's like to swim in a lake versus the ocean. But I didn't realize that when you're in the ocean, you're that much more buoyant because of the salt water. So yeah, and it's my, my lake growing up at home. My parents have a, a cottage on a small lake. And it's warm and it's quiet. And there's no motorboats. And it was just a very different way of swimming. But that's, yeah, that's my swimming history. And what I think I find the book so special, because for me it's about quality of life, and I think even you, Brenda, would agree with me that I think having a body of water in a city is so important, and that can be a swimming pool as well. It can be your local idol. I think a city without that, that's a problem, actually. I, I think it's very important. I, I know that we were very lucky with my children growing up in central London. We were able to go to the Lido at the Serpentine in Hyde Park, and I think they felt that they owned it. But it was fantastic on a hot summer's day in London to be able just to toddle up the road and jump into the Serpentine. Not that I ever did. <laughs> <laughs> but for the kids. For the kids, that was good. It was okay for the kids. Uh, yeah, it is. It uh, gives you a freedom. And again, in a lake, as you said, it's not as challenging as the ocean. Mm. More like a swimming pool. It was cordoned off. It was pretty safe. I mean, there were people on pedalos, you know, relax. quite nearby. But, but yeah, it was safe and fun and great. And Amy, I have to say as well, another session of the book, besides, you know, city, lake and by the ocean as well, we have some pictures from Monaco's editors around the world mm -hmm. traveling. And I think that was quite nice as well, because I think people can relate so much to those pictures, you know, and, and there's quite a lot of inspiration there for people, no? Yeah, and that was a later addition to the book. So we had all of our swimming spots mapped out. We had our essays commissioned. And then we thought there's something else missing from the book. What is it? It's something because we did want that connection Like, how do we as people connect to, to these places where you can swim or not swim? And then we thought, why don't, because we all go on vacation, we all go swimming, well, most of us, why don't we kind of ask around the editors around the office and say, send us your photos from your last vacation or send us your favorite place to swim? Because people just love talking about the best places to swim they've been, right? Everyone gets very hyped up and, oh my gosh, I went to this beach in Mexico and it was so beautiful or, oh, this is my favorite swimming spot. And then I just got a flood of photos from all of our editors in the office So we, we included that section, and I think it really adds a little bit of, um, I don't know, like a personal touch. I like that. Yeah. Well, I have one picture there, which I'm very happy. <laughs> I think Brenda would like this one, Stahl House in California. It's a mid-century house, and it was all built around a pool. Oh, that looks gorgeous. And the kids could jump from the roof of oh, the house. Oh, my goodness. That's, I think it's, for me, it's, that's what swimming is about, about mm. fun mm. as well. And Amy, finally, yes. uh, besides this book, which is coming out right now, tell us about the future projects. What are the upcoming books that yeah. we should look forward to? 
so this Swim and Sun book is the start of a new series of kind of like how we live and, and what we connect to in our life. And so I'm not able to disclose <laughs> what's coming next, but I promise you it's going to be very, very beautiful, very visual in the same style as this book. And then we also have another series of books that we're working on and continue to work on, which is our country handbook series. So we already have a book on Portugal and Spain, and now we are completing our book of France. So it's called France, the Monocle Handbook. Yeah, so we're continuing on the handbook series and then TBD on the next blank and blank. But it's going to be great. Thank you, Amy and Branda. And Swin and Son, a Monocle Guide, is out now. You can order it on monocle.com or at your nearest bookstore. We move on to another great new publication. It's called Slop. It's a food magazine dedicated to produce. It features a bright orange cover. I had a chat in studio with the title founders, Jack Stanley and Nicholas Payne Bother. They told why there was a gap in the market for a magazine like it. We basically wanted to create something that focused on everything in between a farm and a restaurant. I used to be a butcher and it was kind of when I was doing that that I realized there's nothing that covers this. And I think people are really interested in it and people don't really know where their food comes from. And we just wanted to create something that was quite joyous, quite serious, but also lighthearted. Hence why it's called Slop and it's bright orange. <laughs> but it's something where we could kind of talk seriously about food, producers and people that sell that food, your greengrocers, butchers, fishmongers, people like that. And Jack, Nicholas was saying he's a butcher as well. Did you always work in the food industry or the print industry or is this a new thing for you? I've always worked in magazines. So I was the editor of an online magazine for five or so years. I knew Nick through that a long time ago. And then, yeah, about a year ago, we were talking about me maybe quitting my job. And Nick said, well, I've had this very strange idea, which is a magazine about produce. We thought it'd be a fun project that kind of built on both of our interests and the areas that we worked in for our career so far. And here we are. And what I think interesting about Slop, because of course, when you when I read food magazines, I mean, it's lovely. There are a lot of interviews with chefs or the best restaurants in the world, trends. But it's interesting to know the people that are actually making things or selling things independently. Is that why perhaps you decided to launch Slop to celebrate those people? Yeah, that was a big part of it. And I think there's so many interesting things that you can go into from that perspective. And yeah, as I kind of said, that food media is so focused on restaurants so much of the time. And we do deal with restaurants, but we like when we talk to chefs, it's much more about how they feel about produce and how they feel about their suppliers. And I think especially lockdown really brought people into independent food shops, brought people to their local shops that were doing interesting things. And in a sense, when I was a butcher, there was this thing, you would have a conversation on a Saturday morning with someone and they say, oh, what are these pork chops about? Or something like that. And you would have a really good conversation and people were really thirsty for that knowledge. And so I kind of wanted to bring that Saturday morning conversation about food into a wider space and give it to more people. And perhaps, Jack, tell us about some of the highlights. I mean, it's interesting because I live in London and I haven't been to some of those shops, but it's giving me a lot of inspiration. Uh, like, for example, Boran Sons in, in Istelic. I used to live there and I've never been there, but I should. Tell us about some of the, the highlights in this issue as well. Well, I think that idea of giving inspiration is a really big part of it. I would say that Boran Sons, I hadn't been until Nick said we should put it in the mag. And, it and he's on the cover, I have to say. He is on the cover, yeah. He's on, yeah. <laughs> and that's, it's an amazing shop with more fruit than I even knew existed. 
There's an amazing piece on there that Nick wrote about Slovakian wine, which, again, I knew nothing about. Mm. And since he came back from Slovakia, we've been drinking exclusively. And then something that I worked on in there, which was a real, I think, coup for our first issue, was a feature with Jeremy Lee, who is the most kind of amazing, colourful character and really helped bring the magazine to life with his his ideas in there. So there are three highlights, but I'm very pleased with all of it. This story about Slovakian wine, I thought it was super interesting. So do you recommend Slovakian wine? It's absolutely delicious. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's this funny thing, especially with the Slovakian wine, is I'd say to most people, oh, I had this amazing Slovakian wine. And they're like, oh, I didn't even know they made wine there. And the story kind of went deeper than I expected it to in a, in a few different ways that there's like a 400-year history. They used to make all this amazing wine. Then communism came along, totally disrupted the industry for a whole generation. And then there's a small group of people there who are trying to bring back those things, really work with the terroir, make something, make something interesting and make something that's kind of true to a cultural identity that was lost for quite a while. And then even when I was there, one of the winemakers, we were driving back and it kind of the war in Ukraine came up. We were only about two hours from the Ukrainian border. He was like, oh, this is still quite a live issue. And and he said, yeah, I put it in the article. He said, you know, when I die, I want it to be in Slovakia and not in Western Russia. And I was like, wow, this sense of being able to talk about bigger issues and talk about culture through food, I think is really powerful. And I think it's really interesting. Amazing. Jack, I want to ask, because of course the magazine is free, how are you guys distributing the magazine? How? What's the plan? I mean, I, I know we can find it in some places here in London for sure, but tell us if someone is interested perhaps to grab a copy. So we're in a range of kind of retailers in London, most of which are food and drinks retailers, the kind of grocers that we write about or the butchers that we write about. And then we're in a few lifestyle stores here. And then we're trying to get as many stockists as far and wide as possible. So there's a great deli just outside Manchester who have it. There's a magazine shop there who also have it. And yeah, we've sent some out to a clothing store in Copenhagen who want it. So we're really, we want to kind of spread the message of the stuff. The reason that we started the magazine is to spread the word about these producers that we love. And so we're trying to get the magazine into as many places as possible. And we are also, it will be available online to order. We're just not there yet. Oh, amazing. And uh, Nicholas, recently we had on the stack Daniela Vibogan. She has a, a kiosk selling food magazines in Vienna. But that's just to say that there is such an interest in food, in food titles, in, in the history of food, or, or even a magazine like yours, which is quite creative because it focuses on produce. Why do you think that? Why do you think people are so interested? Well, in food in general, actually, to read about it. I think in a sense, it's something that people have fallen out of And people have become more distant from probably over the last 20 or 30 years, you know, supermarkets coming in, people becoming distanced from small places. And I think, you know, as I said before, the lockdown really helped people to re-engage with that. And I think also there's an element of, very fairly, people seeing food as, as a lifestyle indicator and a kind of something, what they put into their bodies is actually part a quite important thing. And I think that there's an element of all of these supermarkets going, oh, this is Dave, he makes our carrots, and people being like, I don't think Dave does make your carrots. <laughs> like, I think that this is, you know, you coming up with this stuff. And so people really kind of wanting to come through that and see something a bit more genuine and, yeah, kind of better for the planet, better for your health, better for the local economy, kind of, yeah, re-engaging with that. And Slop can be found in cool retailers in cities such as London, Manchester and Copenhagen. For more, go to slopmagazine.com.
The Slop team will also partner with London's Carousel for an afternoon of Slop-selected snacks and wines by the glass, next Sunday, the 30th of July. And now we head to Miami in Florida, which is one of the world's most diverse cities with a mix of Americans, Europeans and Latinos emigrating from different periods and different parts of the continent. And while this once meant that the city was alive with community newspapers, local media have struggled to keep their businesses afloat in recent years. One newspaper bucking the trend is El Venezolano, a Spanish-language weekly newspaper for the Venezuelan community. Monaco's Chris Chermak spoke with the newspaper's co-editor, José Hernández, at a bustling community radio station. Newspapers are, it's like an old animals. It's a kind of beautiful thing because the, the news that you put on newspapers are not the regular news that you feel now on the online or in other platforms. The news in the newspaper are what it is. That's it. It's, you write and it's there. What you do in writing is your last statement, and that's it, and you have to understand that. And at the time that you, you understand that, you have the responsibility, which is very, very hard to say the truth. I believe one of the reasons for the New Times, why the truth is so elusive, is because you don't have any moment to frozen the news. When you frozen the news, you have to really say the truth. Yesterday we have a show here in the city where a lot of people go crazy around one person who used to be a president who take papers in the name of I don't know who in the situation of criminal against the law and at the same time people love the guy in a crazy way. Remind me Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez go public and say, I am the responsible of the coup d'etat in 92, and in that coup d'etat, 36 people died, was assassinated by the men who declared his responsibility on that time, and the people of Venezuela make him president. Sometimes the humanity go against the wall insistently. For me, this is one of the moments. What we saw in Cuba after the ideas of Castro, and it's a crazy thing, but it happens. I have no idea why. You talked about the importance of newspapers. Why is it important, would you say, in the Venezuelan community? Has it been challenging, would you say, as a business, uh, the side of it, to, to keep a newspaper totally, going? Totally, totally challenging. We have to do all the reductions. All, we have to, to rethink all the, all the system. We have to do everything again. And we have to sacrifice the, the work of the people, and the possibilities to the recheck all the pieces. And we have to work with that. It's a big problem. 10, 20 years ago, in this city, you have more than 80 weekly newspapers, 80, in all the languages, Arabic, Chinese, Russian, Italian, Hispanic. English, wherever you want, you found it. Now we have around five, and it's crazy. And everybody go to the social media, 
One other question. Just tell me a little about this community, Doral, where, where many Venezuelans are. What are the issues that matter most to them? Uh, Doral is a very Venezuelan community because our people, when we decide to be in Miami and not the people who live in Miami and Caracas, for example, we decide to live around the custom, which is close. The custom of the U.S. custom is very close here. And that's the reason why Doral is surrounded by warehouses. At the same time, they decide to live close to the warehouses where they work, when they have the business. That's the reason why I so many Venezuelans in Doral. And the same time, they have the opportunity to play golf. And they have the opportunity to send his kids to the school. And that's the reason why we be in Doral as a community. And Doral is a very unique environment in the Miami community because it's very different than the rest. But in Miami, you have sometimes places like Medley, which is in the north of Doral. Medley is more industrial, more warehouse places, less houses. Or you have Kendall, which is houses, 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 and no industrial. In Doral, you have business, industrial, and houses. It's a very unique environment, and it's a very special community. We have to create a, a good system as a government, a local government, and I believe this is a very good opportunity to the new administration to do more livable place, which is very good too, but it's not as good as we want to be. And just finally tell me a little about the interactions, I wonder, between the Venezuelan community, the Cuban community, the Nicaraguan community here. We have to live together. We don't have any, any other option. We have to live together and be happy with the other. That's it. That's the reason why we're here. You have to live with your partner here. Nicaraguan, Venezuelan, Colombian, Cuban, Brazilian, Argentinian, Americans, which Americans are, <laughs> and live there happy, and that's it. This is the reason why we are here as a fusion place. Maybe if we are more integrated, it could be better, but we are in the process. Are there very different perspectives, would you say, between? Uh, we have a very different cultures. We have to have a very different perspective. And uh, maybe if we come together more easily, we have a more broader vision. That's the reason why Miami is so success in the market as a city. It's a, it's a brand, it's a, and it's a very important brand. You, you talk about Miami, and everybody knows, it's because it's from everybody. You have people from all America, all the hemisphere, and from many countries in Europe, too. And finally on the show, Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, had a chat with So Taylor, a Monaco contributor and founder and editor-in-chief of a newly launched magazine, travel title called Sablos. story did start quite a while ago when I started working for you at Wallpaper and then moved to Wink, when we started Monaco, and then I moved to Rio. I was helping out the mayor of Rio there. And the whole time, I never found a travel, certainly in the, in, in the mainstream travel media, never found a travel title that really spoke to me. And the reason for that is, if you, if you look at the travel media sector, it's lovely, nice, pretty pictures of beaches, it's uh, street corners, it's nice bits of food, but there's very rarely any people in that. And I always thought that I had 
the idea to, to launch a magazine and also an app and a, a website that concentrated on the locals because within the sort of like the, 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 the travel media landscape, no one ever concentrated on the locals. So that's what we've done. We, we've launched a magazine that's about people and their places. So, so just um, Sablos uh, as the title for it, and, and I think you know, we, we've always also talked about the importance of a sense of place. And one of the things that probably drives you crazy as much as, as me is it's always amazing when you look at so many websites, you look at so many brands which talk about purpose and cause and all of the, the hot terms of the day. And then you sort of get to the About Us page and it talks more about purpose and cause. And it never says where the brand is from. It rarely exactly. talks about even who's behind it. But here you are, there's this, you have Sablos on, of course, the front cover. You're based in Spain. So how much of this is a reflection or is it through an Iberian lens versus uh, it's, it's also completely global? Because you also do cast your eye you know, far and wide as well in terms of your contributors and certainly uh, the, the, yeah, the subjects you're talking to. We like to think of ourselves very much as a product of Barcelona. Everything is done here. So it's printed here. The design team is here. We also had uh, a font crafted for us, especially by a, a local designer here. So yeah, for me, it's very much a product of, of Barcelona. But having said that, it's a global title. You can find this all around the world. So in the in, right across Europe, in the uh, US, in Asia. So it is, of course, being a travel title, it, it's an international, you know, we, we're, we're thinking international, but we'd like to think of ourselves as a sort of a cheery, you know, Iberian product. Well, on the topic of cheery and um, and all things Iberian as well, I want to bring in uh, your former boss into this discussion as well. Andrew Tuck is on the line. Andrew, you worked with Sol for uh, for, for quite a stint. Uh, you you shared a very large uh, desk. I mean, not just one desk, but it was it was a collection of desks as well. Um, for people who aren't familiar with Sol Taylor, do you, do you have any sort of favorite stories? And, and is he qualified to do a magazine like this, Andrew? He's highly qualified, although I don't know I ever felt that I was his boss. I think that was a bit of <laughs> the good thing about Saul and that generation of writers who came in and editors who came at the beginning of Monocle is that they were a reflection of a change of pace for magazine publishing, especially at Monocle, that we wanted some liveness on page. We wanted people who wanted to get out in the world. We didn't want people who wanted to do interviews by phone and sit at their desks. And wow, did we hire well. It was like holding on to an eel, holding on to a young soul and, and off he went. An amazing collaborator. And I think that, you know, when we look today at staff and hiring, we're always looking for those echoes today, even now. So, uh, yes, I think well-skilled. And Anne Saul, I have a real copy because I went into the newsstand in Palmer the other day and there was right at the front door a very big pile of Sablos. So oh, well done. I think well, you, not too you big a pile, though. Well, no, quite a reasonably impressive pile because I think when you get that first issue out, you don't want one lone copy like risk being covered up by some other rival magazine. Because look, we, we know we've done that in the early days. We've made sure that our magazine is front or forward in every newsstand we've gone into. So well done. It was, it was impressive to see it out there. And nice to see, again, you know, a world of collaborators that have come through through our lives as well, kind of uh, landing up on page with you too. So Thank you, know, you. You, know, you know what Andrew's saying, basically, he said, yeah, he went in, there was a big stack of magazines, but then if he went, went in as the next customer, Sablos was probably hiding uh, behind uh, yeah, a wall of Convex and Monocles. But anyway, that's what happens in the world of newsstands, so, as, as you know. Tell us quickly, uh, and maybe Andrew, just your, your thoughts on this as well. It would sort of be the obvious question if I was an, an investor uh, putting money behind this, why do a print magazine, you could sort of say is, is a niche market as well, as opposed to doing an app, Saul? Yeah, I think of all the sectors, the travel industry is, is relatively booming. And I think there is room, as I said, the sort of like the, the mainstream sector, 
for something that does something a little bit different because the, I think the travel media is tends to be quite similar. So we're doing something different, but also something that the partners actually quite like and the advertisers quite like is this 360 degree approach. So the, there is an app coming. They quite like the idea of that. So there is a digital component to this. But you know me, I'm a magazine man and I was just desperate to get my own magazine out there. So I think, and, that, and that's testament to you and to Andrew as well. But thank, thank you. So and much. and Andrew, he had to he had to score it on a, on a launch issue. I mean, launch issues are, are, are never easy. Um, you know, we always have to add a game show element to this. Of course, we've we've got we've got Chandra here as well with her recommendations. What score are you giving it for a launch? Well, if I gave it 10 out of 10, there'd be no way to go. So let's give it 9 out of 10. Let me just say a few things. I think it's sexy. I think it, it, it's cheeky. I think it has character. It's witty in its use of illustration. And I think that the, the thing that Saul talks about there, which I find again and again and again, is there is so much travel coverage. There's so much acreage of press trips written up as passing off as reports. But what you need is somebody who dissects that. And I think this, this, this feeling that it is a bit Iberian and that this slicing and dicing from there makes it very palatable. So uh, listen, as you said, it's on newsstand around the world. Next edition is out when, I guess, for autumn? September, yes. We'll be on the newsstand mid-September. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can always listen to The Stack on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Caribou with Sun. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Sun, 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 sun.